What I'm going to do, as I've been doing lately, is I'll read just a small section to get us rolling in 1 Corinthians 11, get a taste for what's happening in this sermon, what's happening in this section of the letter. And I say get a taste for, that is a little bit of a pun intended because we're talking about the Lord's Supper in this section. So I'll read verse 17 on through verse 22, and we'll start looking through it verse by verse. 1 Corinthians 11:17 says, Now in giving these instructions, I do not praise you. Since you come together, not for the better, but for the worse. For first of all, when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you. And in part, I believe it. For there must also be factions among you, that those who are approved may be recognized among you. Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper, For in eating, each one takes his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry, and another is drunk. What, do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? What shall I say to you? Shall I praise you in this? I do not praise you. Oh boy, the Corinthians are in trouble. Another spanking from the Apostle Paul coming their way. Aren't we thankful for the Corinthian church? Because... uh, as what a mess they were, we've learned so much from them. So we'll see what they have to teach us, how Paul corrects them and their communion as we get on into the passage. Have you ever heard of William Pudge Heffelfinger? No? Nobody knows Pudge Heffelfinger? Well, you should know him. He was a six foot three, 200 pounds. Notice the difference between, he was a big guy in that day. Six foot three, 200 pounds player for the Yale football team, extremely athletic. He lettered in rowing and lettered in baseball and also in football. He played from 1888 to 1891 at Yale, and he led their team in four very successful seasons. One of the seasons, I think it was the 1888 season, they went undefeated and unscored upon. They led their opponents in scoring 698 points to zero that season. What a season. And Pudge was leading the way. But that is not why his name should be known. On November 12, 1892, an event occurred that would change the future of what we call American football. Pudge was openly paid to play football for the Allegheny Athletic Club against the Pittsburgh Athletic Club, making him the first outwardly paid pro football player. You know what he made at that game? 500 bucks. That's what they paid him. And then the trend began. Players were paid and they were seen as professional. That would have been worth about 12000 in his day. So what does that introduction have to do with today's sermon? Well, as I sit down and think about the Lord's Supper, oftentimes in my own life, I remember years ago being at the old cafeteria, at the old high school, now the middle school, and we were trying to fit in communion. So that day, that first Sunday of the month, you know, we've got to get through the Word. We've got to have worship. We've got to have our Bible study. And, oh, we've got to fit communion in. And people want to get home and we can't stretch it out. So how do we fit this in? And I remember during the service, we're passing the communion elements and everybody's just sitting there facing up front. And I remember having this crisis and saying, is this what the Lord wanted? Is this what the Lord had in mind? And I just had this little crisis of how did we get here? I mean, how did we get to this being the Lord's Supper? I mean, The Lord's Supper is possibly, and I think arguably, the greatest ongoing event in the history of the church. This thing that Jesus called us to do in remembrance of Him. He celebrated the yearly Passover with His disciples, and He changed the emphasis of it 
forever when he said, this is my body broken for you. And this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood shed for you. And food was an essential part of that meal. As we look through the New Testament, food, even from Genesis, God made us to eat. Amen to that, right? And eat we will to his glory. And the first sin was involving food. And many sins after that involving food. Jesus eats with Matthew and the tax collectors. Jesus eats with sinners and tax collectors. He eats with Zacchaeus. He invites himself over for a meal. He eats with Mary and Martha, and Mary is there at his feet while Martha's preparing the meal. So we see Jesus eating with people. And the early church, well, the Passover was a Jewish thing, and that was the context of a meal, and that meal was a meal of remembrance, and they remembered a lamb. A lamb that was sacrificed. They would all sacrifice. If you had a household, you got a lamb for the household. And everybody would sacrifice their lamb at the same time. And the Bible says it was as if one lamb was sacrificed for the nation. And whoever had the blood over the doorpost would be not only saved from death, but also then that group would be set free. And you did that by faith. You put that blood of that lamb over your household and it covered and rescued your household and kept you safe from death. And that was the meal Jesus ate. But the Greeks knew nothing of that. The Gentiles, they didn't connect to that history of the Israelites, of the Jews, but they had their own sacred meals, their own community meals called the Aranos, and that was popular. And then they would go to the idol's temple, and that's where they would have sacred meals in the context of the idol's temple. They would send invitations. They would say, hey, come join me for a meal at the temple of so-and-so, Lord Serapis. And the God was actually hosting the meal, and the meal was in the honor of that God. And then Paul brings the gospel and he calls the church to eat together. It was their culture to eat together. And Jesus had taken this Passover and in the early church, it becomes what we call the agape meal. If you read the book of Jude, Jude talks about false teachers. He says, spots on their love feasts. Their love feasts. They ate together. This is an aha moment for some people, especially if you've grown up in a real liturgical church kind of setting. How do we get where we are today? Where did we come from? In the early church, the Lord's Supper was in the context of a real meal that people ate together. Now it's more like the Lord's snack than the Lord's Supper. And I don't mean that irreverently. Just to say because of abuses and because of other things, it has become what we experience, what many of us have experienced today. Remember, agape means love. So the agape feast is a love dinner. If you're having a love dinner, I want to be there. I want to come to that. The problem with the Corinthians was that they had the dinner, but they had lost the love. There was no agape in their agape feast. So through the early church, Acts chapter 2, they gathered together diligently for the apostles' doctrine, for the breaking of bread and feasting and prayer and eating together, fellowship. So they did that in the early church. Jesus did it. Jesus taught it. The early church did it. The apostles taught it. So here we are today, and we have the little plastic cup and a little piece of matzah, and we focus so much on ritual nowadays. And William Barclay said, we asked the question, how did we get here? The answer is in the New Testament itself. The agape, the meal, was liable to abuse, as we see in the church in Corinth. What should have been a feast of fellowship could easily become a feast at which snobbish social distinctions actually wrecked the fellowship. He goes on to say the agape became a casualty 
because human or carnal nature debased a lovely thing until it became a handicap rather than a help to the Christian fellowship. And it is one of the tragedies of the life of the church. And I would say amen. One of the tragedies of the modern church is that we have separated out the Lord's Supper, made it a ritualistic thing that we practice, and we have separated it from a meal in which we have relationship with each other. That was my communion crisis. Everybody's sitting here looking at me or looking at forward, but no one's talking to each other. So one of the important elements to me as a pastor is that people talk to each other. And so we make sure to spend time eating together, and then we have people pray together, because any way you slice it, gang, we're stuck with each other. We are the family of God, like it or not, for better or for worse. I mean, we are God's children, and he wants us to enjoy relationship with him, and he wants us to enjoy relationship with each other. Mom and dad, you know how that feels. When your kids don't get along, when they can't hang out together, that hurts your heart, doesn't it? Imagine how God feels when his children won't get along and won't hang out together. But imagine how pleased he is when he looks on us and he sees his children enjoying a meal together. So in 1 Corinthians 11, as Paul writes to correct some of the major abuses and problems in their Lord's Supper, he doesn't correct anything to do with their ritual. He doesn't correct anything to do with the form of their communion or the method of their communion. He corrects the attitudes of their hearts in their relationships with each other. And I still think in this day, oftentimes the communion we think about in terms of my relationship with Jesus but we de-emphasize the importance of my relationship with you and your relationship with each other. And that's why Paul has to write these corrective words. So verse 17, he says, Now, in giving these instructions, I do not praise you, since you come together not for the better, but for the worse. Beginning of chapter 11, he started out by saying, Hey, I praise you guys because you keep the traditions just as I brought them to you. But now he says, Well, but there's this Lord's Supper I can't praise you about this. I mean, you're coming together, but I can't praise you about it. Notice he says, you come together not for the better, but for the worse. You ever been to a church like that? If this is how it's going to look, you're better off not getting together. I mean, tension and conflict and factions and division. So it was good they were getting together, but there were some bad things happening when they came together. And we might think anytime God's people get together, it's a good thing. And look, the Bible says, don't forsake the assembling of ourselves together. But there's a way to do it that we leave, having been at church, we leave worse off than when we came. Again, I think you've probably experienced that in your life at some point, maybe at a church you were part of. So the question for the Corinthians is, well, what's so bad? What's making it worse for them to come together? And Paul gives them the answer. Well, first of all, he says, verse 18, when you come together, and notice that, This is repeated, come together, come together. It is when they came together as the church. So we're not speaking about what they do in their private lives, in their private homes, their daily, weekly lives. Once a week on the Lord's Day, they would gather together from all corners of Corinth, just like we come together from all corners of Charlottesville, Fluvanna, and here we are together to celebrate and remember the Lord and and learn and, and just be the family of God. So when you come together as a church, I hear that there are divisions among you, and in part, I believe it. Divisions, schisms, splits, tears. They were supposed to be coming together 
as one. So they came together, but they didn't come together. Does that make sense? They came together, but they were apart. It'd be like eating at a restaurant versus eating a meal at the church. You go to a restaurant, everybody's eating together, but they're not together. This group over here doesn't talk to that table over there, and that table over there doesn't know that table over there. And so they're all eating in one place. They share a place at a restaurant, but you don't share unity. And a church can become like that, Paul says. Corinthian church had become like that. They were sharing a place, but they weren't sharing unity. So that was problem number one. There were factions and parties and cliques and divisions. There were the haves and the have-nots. What you'll find out as we go through, that it seems like the particular situation is you had the wealthy who didn't work. They had money. They didn't have to work. Working was for low-class people. They would come to church for the worship service. And in that day, the church would have communion every Sunday, and it would be in the context of a meal. So they'd eat a meal together. They'd break bread at the beginning of the meal, and then they'd eat, and then they'd share the cup at the end of the meal. I know it's a little different than what we do. And then they would enjoy a time of teaching and prophecy, and they would share the Word of God together and have some music and sing songs together. And that was what the standard service looked like. And lots of people participated. Everybody participated. It wasn't like this. the pastor did everything. So we try to embrace that at our own communion services on Sunday night. We'll embrace that. Other people have a chance to share. So that's what it was supposed to look like, this oneness, this unity. But instead, the rich would come, and they'd bring all the good food. You know how that is when you go to an agape meal or you go to a potluck. I don't like any meal that has the word luck in it, by the way. <laughs> but some people are bringing the fried chicken and the good stuff, and other people are bringing, you know, the bag of chips because that's all they can afford. They can't bring anything. And everybody's supposed to come together bringing whatever they could bring, and they would just divvy it up and split it and share it together. And that's oneness. That's what unity does. But the rich would bring their fancy meal and their wine and They wouldn't wait for the poor, the slaves. They would just go ahead and start chowing down and devouring their meal. Forget about the poor. Forget about the lower class, the have-nots. So what we see in this is a real delineation between the haves and the have-nots, the wealthy and the poor. And Paul says this is a tragedy in the church. So there's divisions, but the divisions themselves are not surprising. Look at verse 19. For there must also be factions, heresies, or choices. You know, it's easy to be unified when there's only one choice. How many of you have a TV in every room of your house? Or everybody has their own computer? When there's only one channel to watch, everybody seems to be able to watch the same channel. But when you have cable or direct TV, and there's a thousand channels to watch, and we can't decide what channel to watch, then you got your TV, and I got my computer, and I go to my room, and you're in your room, and we're all watching TV together, but independently. You know what I'm talking about? Well, that's what the meal was like in Corinth. They couldn't have unity. There was division. There were choices, different teachings, different groups. And he says, these factions, they actually have a place. He says, I'm not surprised that we're humans and that's going to happen. But he says, God uses it that those who are approved may be recognized among you. So the divisions are not surprising, but they are revealing. When you have opportunity for different choices in terms of different teachings, a different emphasis or conflict, you can tell a lot about a person by the way they handle conflict, by the way they handle division. If they reinforce division, if they encourage or foster division through gossip or through a party kind of spirit, whatever it might be, then that's not the heart of the Lord. And you don't see that stuff until there's a division. And then when a division happens or when a conflict happens, 
that reveals a lot about where people are with the Lord. So do you try to help mend? Are you a peacemaker? Or do you drive the wedge deeper? Are you willing to forgive? Or do you hold a grudge? Are you willing to yield? Or do you have to have it your way? Are you willing to reconcile? Or have you put your foot down and you're not going to make up? All these things reveal. So when conflicts happen around here, it's really kind of a good thing. You really get to see where people are with the Lord. So Paul says we expect these things. That's problem number one. There's divisions and parties. They're supposed to be doing something that fosters unity, but they were divided. All right. Verse 20 says, Therefore, when you come together in one place, it is not to eat the Lord's Supper. I mean, they called it the Lord's Supper. But Paul says, I'm telling you, what you're doing has nothing to do with Jesus. Do you ever feel that way today? I mean, we call it something, but it has gone far from what it was supposed to be. This may be true of a lot of tables of the Lord in a lot of churches in America and maybe around the world. I mean, we call it the Lord's Supper, but I wonder if Paul would say to us, I'm not sure if that's really what the Lord had in mind. I'm not sure if you can call that the Lord's Supper. They came in one place, but they were not one body. And what they were doing, the divisions, the way they treated each other, had nothing to do with Jesus. Now, that was their challenge. I think we have a different challenge in our day. I think our challenge is less the factions and divisions. I mean, we've got that from church to church to church, and we'll get into that later. But I think for us, the challenge is in that those words come together. Now, I'm preaching to the choir in a sense because you're here, but just because you're here doesn't mean you're here. You know what I'm talking about? Just because your body's here doesn't mean you have any relationships with anybody else. Now, some of you are great in terms of relationships, but others, you come in at the beginning of the service, you don't talk to anybody, and then you leave without ever having talked to anybody, and you come up and you can take the bread and the cup, but never have any relationship. But I think Paul would say the same to you. That's not the Lord's Supper. You might call it the Lord's Supper, but that's not the Lord's Supper. The big challenge of our culture is prioritizing time together. Now, some of you are familiar with the Peace Corps. They send people out all over the world to do work in different cultures, different places. So when people go out to a different culture, they have to tell them what this culture is like. Here's the culture you're going into. If you're going to China, here's what to expect culturally. Well, people come to America, and they have to tell people from Europe that are coming to America, here's what you need to know about American culture. Are you ready? Here's what their document says. Americans believe that if things take a long time to do, they won't be able to do enough of them. Many Americans believe that more and faster is better. They do not like to stand in line and wait. They originated fast food. Pause right there. That's how I felt about communion. And sometimes you'll hear me say it. I'm done with fast food communion. Just come up front, take the cracker, take the glass of juice, and go on our way. That's not the Lord's Supper. And that was my crisis, that we can't turn the Lord's Supper into fast food without relationship. So Americans started fast food. He said, Americans believe that getting things done and doing them quickly, like communion, is more important than other things. What other things? Well, many other cultures believe that slower is better and that building and maintaining relationships takes priority over getting things done at the expense of relationships. So what that is saying is when it comes to America, our highest priority is accomplishments and being more productive. And we're willing to sacrifice relationships for productivity. But the gospel says that we are a family. And it's to our detriment that we de-emphasize relationship and overemphasize productivity. Look, Helga and I have this conversation. There's days when you've got Saturday to get things done. 
I mean, it's much easier to divide and conquer. I'll go to Walmart, you clean the kitchen, and then we'll get it all done. But every so often I stop and say, you know what, that's great, we'll get stuff done. But sometimes it's nice to go to Walmart together. Because what we're doing then is we may not get the kitchen clean, but we're spending time together. And I think that should be a priority in relationships, don't you? We know that Jesus does. Now, the challenge in our culture is how many of you have met somebody that said, oh, are you a Christian? Yeah, yeah, I'm a Christian. Oh, really? Where do you go to church? Oh, I don't go to church. Really? Well, what do you do? Well, I stay home and I watch TV church. Do you really now? See, that's the independent spirit of the American. Somehow that's what being a Christian is about. I stay home and I watch a sermon and I don't have time for people. I mean, you cannot say that you love Jesus, but I don't like people. I mean, imagine if Jesus said that. Well, God, I really love you, but I really don't have time for your people. What if Jesus said that? How would that be? He would never say it. I mean, it's ridiculous. So Joel Osteen, Charles Stanley, if you're in the hospital or you have a need, they're not coming here. They don't know you. They don't care about you. So watching church at home, I'm not saying that's bad, but if that's all you do, it's falling way short of what the Lord has for you. Falling way short of you being able to live the Christian life God's intending you to live. So for them, what was the problem? Why is this not the Lord's Supper? Verse 21, each one takes his own supper. Notice the emphasis on the word his own supper ahead of others. And one is hungry and another is drunk. So there's two problems revealed here. One is an individualistic attitude and the other is an indulgent attitude. And those are the two things that are highlighted here. Look what he says. Each one takes his own supper. And that's the word supper is the Greek word for the evening meal. So you had your breakfast and you had your lunch, but then the evening meal, the dipnon in Greek, is when the family would come together and linger at the table. We have lost that concept. Again, it's just our culture. And the gospel challenges our culture. So it challenges us to say, hey, maybe we need to linger together some. And I know it's, uh, I got things to do. I got places to go. I know. And you'll do that to your own detriment. Now we've come together for a meal, and it's not necessarily socioeconomic stuff that divides us. It's social media stuff that divides us. How many of you have found yourself falling into that trap where we're maybe at the table together, but he's on his phone and she's on her phone, and we're together, but we're not together because everybody's on their phones? The greatest oxymoron is the word social media. It is the most antisocial creation ever. It's not social, it's antisocial. So in Corinth, the rich are coming together. They're bringing all the good food. The word for eating supper ahead of others is that they're devouring their food. They're indulging and not caring about the poor who have nothing. And then they're indulging in the wine that was for communion and they're getting drunk. But the very thing that should be unifying them was actually dividing them based on class distinction, the haves and the have-nots. There was no sharing going on in the church. And there was a delineation of you people eat over there, where us, the wealthy aristocrats, will eat over here, and the poor will eat over there. Look, one of the things I love about the body of Christ is I get to have lunch or dinner with people I would not have hung out with in any other context. God puts all kinds of people together in this thing called the body of Christ, and he clothes us all with Christ. In that culture, clothes meant status. And when God says through Paul in Galatians, there's neither Jew nor Greek nor slave nor free, 
but we are all clothed with Christ, what that means is all the distinctions of our nationality, our culture, all that stuff is gone because we all have put on Christ. We all come equally to the table of God as full-fledged children, equally. I love that. I love going to the soup kitchen in Charlottesville because we sit and we eat with the group of people that have gathered there and you look around, you can't tell who's who. You can't tell who's homeless, who's not homeless. Everybody's eating together and it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. So they're indulgent and they're individualistic in their approach to the Lord's Supper. So what he says to them is, look at verse 22. You can kind of hear his frustration. He says, what? I mean, what is going on with you guys? Do you not have houses to eat and drink in? Or do you despise the church of God and shame those who have nothing? See, again, the haves and the have-nots. What do I say about this? Am I supposed to praise you guys for this? How can I praise you? Shall I praise you? No, I, I can't praise you. He says to them, look, if you've got houses to eat and drink, have your dinner or have your lunch or whatever it is you need. But then when you come together in the word agape meal, listen carefully, the emphasis is on agape, not meal. There are some meals we eat just to shove it down and move on with life. Busy, we got somewhere to be, got somewhere to get. It's a common meal, but we're on the run. But there are some meals that are about relationship. It's not about the food. It's not about what's being served. It's about I get to sit and eat with you. A number of years ago, we had a chance to go to Europe together. We spent three weeks as a family. We had a German exchange student. Her parents invited us to come and stay with them, so we went. And the best part of that trip was not the seeing the sights in Europe, but it was just eating 63 meals together in three weeks. Breakfast, lunch, dinner, every day. And that changes relationships. Do you know what I'm saying? So I think one of the great detriments to us culturally and to the church, just as William Barclay said, the loss of the church eating meals together. Now, there's a reason that when this church started, they called us Calorie Chapel. That was our nickname, Calorie Chapel, because we like to eat together. And when we were a small church just starting out, down in Common Ground, down by the gas station, that was our church office and the place we met for Bible study. And we'd have people overflowing out the doors. We'd have communion on Wednesday night with potluck meal. And it was just a, such a great time, such a blessed time. And then we moved to the building and communion grew and agape meal grew. Now we had a hundred little pieces of Tupperware and 50 macaroni and cheeses and 22 liter bottles of soda. And it changed. So instead of going, oh, well, well, let's just chuck the thing. We said, you know, we have to hold on to this because it's important. And so that's why we still try to be creative and have a meal we can share together because at the end of the day, it's about relationship. The Christian life is about having relationship with each other, but our culture forces us to try to think of it independently, and you can't do that. He says, if it's about being full, eat at home. The funny thing about potluck is one person brings like all this beautiful fried chicken, and then another person brings the bag of chips and the soda, and then the first people through the line, they think it's golden corral. You know what I mean? It's piled up. A fried chicken stacked on top of mashed potatoes, stacked on top of macaroni and cheese, and there's deviled eggs. You gotta use the mashed potatoes to lodge the deviled eggs in so they don't fall off. You stick them in there and then they don't fall off your plate because it's so big, it's like a mountain. And the first people go through and they chow down, and then the last people through the line, you know, they get some crumbs of some kind of potato salad and maybe uh, half a deviled egg that's left or something. I don't know, mac and cheese. But the first people, 
You've been to a potluck like that, haven't you? The idea is that you're not there to fill yourself up and indulge. You're there for the relationship. So he corrects their behavior. And how does he do it? He takes them back to the beginning, just like thinking about Pudge Heffelfinger and where football began for the Corinthians and for me and for you. He has to take us back to what was the beginning of this thing we call the Lord's Supper. He says, I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the same night in which he was betrayed, he took bread and he snarfed it down. Oh no, it doesn't say that. He said, listen guys, this is my last supper. I need to make the best of it. Is that what it says? Now, when we talk about the Lord's Supper and this is my body broken for you, I could preach sermons for hours about the Lord's Supper. But I want you to know that the context and the purpose of this is not to outline the doctrine of the Lord's Supper. And so I'm going to present it in the context that it's in. The emphasis for Paul is not on what the words mean. We have transubstantiation and consubstantiation. The Catholics believe that the elements actually become the literal body and blood of Christ because Jesus said, this is my body. Well, Jesus also said, I am the door. And so I don't know that I agree with that because Jesus isn't a door, but we can have that argument another time. Then the Lutherans have consubstantiation that they believe that Jesus is present with the elements. And then we tend to take what we call a memorialist approach. We believe it's about remembering and honoring him in the way we do it. So we could talk about all that stuff. But the point of this, what Paul is saying to them, is look at the selfless, loving sacrifice in the heart of Jesus during that meal. And he wants that same heart of selfless, loving, caring sacrifice to be present in the Corinthians when they eat together. That's the point. When he had given thanks, he broke it and said, take, eat, this is my body, which is broken for you as a substitute. Do this in remembrance of me. And when you do it, it's a command, when you do it, it should call to memory my life and my death and my love for you and my love for the person next to you and my love for the person in the other row. And if I love them, who are you to say that you won't love them? In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. His blood was given his life for our life. He substituted his life for us. This do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. So there's a very giving nature to the Last Supper. Did you see that? It's all about Jesus not taking from the disciples. They didn't gather around the table and Jesus said, okay, guys, what'd you bring? What'd you bring for me? I mean, it's my last night. If ever there was a night I was going to be selfish, it was the night before I died. I mean, I'm having briars till can't eat anymore. It's the last time I get to eat it. So I'm selfish. I'm indulgent. It's about me. I mean, it's my last night. If ever there's a time to be selfish. But that's not what we see in Jesus. Even the night he's going to be betrayed. He never dissolves into selfish, self-centeredness. Even at the cross, he makes sure Mary is taken care of. John, behold your mother. Through that all, he was always thinking of other people, always putting others' needs first. The greatest way to make sure Jesus is glorified and honored in the body of Christ is to look out and care for in a very real and affectionate way 
the needs and the lives of others. Yes, others who are in a different cultural class, others of a different nationality, others of a different economic class, all that stuff. When you do it, he says, do it in remembrance of me. How do you want to be remembered? Do you want to be remembered by a 5K run or a college scholarship? This is going to be the Steve Fedden Marathon. Please don't do that. Because I hate to run. I got other things I like. But running, having a marathon or a 5K fun run in my honor would not honor me because I didn't like that. I don't like to run. And if you knew me, you'd know I didn't like that. Have a bike-a-thon or a Bible study-a-thon or something. I don't know. Do something. But it should be, now listen, what I say is it should be consistent with who I am, right? And so that's why this whole thing is a mess because what they were doing really was not remembering him properly because it was self-centered and self-indulgent. And when Jesus says, do this in remembrance of me, it's not just a mental activity. It speaks of an action. When God remembered the people of Israel, he remembered them to act on their behalf. So when we do this in remembrance of him, we do it to recall to mind his life and act on that. That's the idea. So he says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim or literally preach the Lord's death till he comes. I mean, what greater act of love could there be than a man lay down his life for his friends? And all he's asking them to do is lay down their social distinctions, lay down their fork and knife for a time and wait for everybody to come. Don't devour the food before everybody else gets there. Be patient. Who do we preach to? I believe as you often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you preach the Lord's death till he comes. I know one person I preach to, I preach to me. When I come to the Lord's table, I preach the selfless, sacrificial, loving gospel of Christ to me. I need to be reminded that all that I have, all that I experience, all the blessing, the peace in my life, all comes because Jesus was not selfish. But he was willing to lay his life down so I could have life. And the one to whom much is given, man, much is required. I want to honor that. So he says, therefore, verse 27, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup, strap your seatbelts on, gang, in an unworthy manner, notice that, will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. That doesn't sound good, does it? Now, there's a lot of discussion about the manner in which we receive communion in our day and age. Again, I don't know what background you came from, Episcopal, Catholic, Lutheran, non-denominational, Baptist, whatever you came from, you probably had some experience with receiving communion. For us, it's the little cup and the little piece of matzah. If you grew up Catholic, man, there's all kinds of rituals involved with that, and you got to come forward, and sometimes you kneel, and sometimes you don't, and the priest is there, and you stick out your tongue, but not too far, but, in, but far enough so you can put on the tongue, and then there's the chalice, and you know, you got to drink it in a certain way, and because they believe it's the real literal body and blood of Christ. You can't drop that stuff. There's a lot of pressure. We went to church with some friends some time ago, and it was a high church, and, uh, and it was communion. And I didn't know what to do. I mean, I'm used to the cup and the matzah, the wafer, and so it was the common chalice. And I'm thinking, okay, there's this symbol if you don't want to drink the chalice, and then there's this symbol if you want it in your hand and not in your mouth. And does anybody know what I'm talking about? So we sit down, we go down there, and I'm nervous. I'm sweating because I don't know exactly how to do this thing. And I feel like I'm trying to steal third base because I'm making all these hand signals like I don't want it in my mouth. I don't know where that guy's been, and he drank it. And then there's some rule that you can't put it in there. And listen, 
I don't say that irreverently or irrespectfully or insensitively. I bring what is a very important sacrament because when Paul says, whoever eats this bread and drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner, the form of the ritual is the farthest thing from his mind. He's not worried about which hand goes over which or do I kneel or do I stick my tongue out or do I take it this way or do I take it that way? Do I say amen? He's not worried about any of that. The unworthy manner is how we treat each other. That's what he's talking about. The way we do relationships. And wouldn't we do well in our current church culture to pay more attention at the Lord's Supper to our relationships with each other than to how we do the ritual? Are you with me in that? Whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner. Now, some people feel like that you need to be worthy. And that's not what it means. It's not what it says. It's not an adjective describing you. It's an adverb describing the way that we come together. And it doesn't mean that I have to be worthy and that I have to earn my way in. He said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood, not your performance. So it doesn't mean that you have to be worth. Look, your worth and your value are not intrinsic. I mean, they're not in you. Your worth and your value come from the value God, the Father, and His Son place on you. And they thought well enough of you, they valued you enough to die for you. That's where your value comes from. None of us in ourselves are worthy of that sacrifice. But he loves us so much that he does it. Unworthily, not me confessing every sin and saying confession and all that. That comes later. Unworthily, yes. Selfishly, indulgently, uncaringly, superstitiously, ritualistically, independently. And also recognizing that the communion is not just between me and God. It's between me and you as well. So he says, verse 28, let a man examine or literally keep examining himself or keep testing himself. And so, or in that way, let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. So the way to come to the Lord's table, the way to come together for the meal is by examining yourself. Again, he says, examine yourself Not to find out, oh, yes, I'm a sinner. Oh, I've done 17 things wrong today. I can't take communion. It's not to keep you away from the table. It's to actually, what he says there is this is the way to come to the table. He invites you to come to the table. He wants you to come to his table, to dine with him. Book of Revelation says that. And the way we come is going, how are my relationships? Is there anyone unforgiven? Is there any bitterness? Is there any grudge that I'm holding against someone else in the body of Christ? Do I really want Jesus? Is this really what I signed up for? Is this really what I want? And I'm examining myself and reaffirming, yes, this is the life I've been offered and this is the life I want and may the power of God work in me to produce his character in me. And that's the examination. So we're so good at examining other people, right? It doesn't say, let a man examine other people. And only eat with them if they're worthy. It's not what it says. Self-examination fosters humility. And humility fosters unity. I come and I remember just what I needed. Man, I came desperate to Christ. Gordon Fee, commentator, says, One wonders whether our making the text deal with self-examination has not served to deflect the greater concern of the text, which is that we give more attention at the Lord's Supper to our relationships with one another in the body of Christ. So it's not about, oh, this over-examination and, oh, guilt and shame and horror and, oh, I can't take the Lord's Supper. 
It's about just taking a stock in your relationships. And he says, for he who continually, I added that, continually eats and continually drinks in this unworthy manner, selfishly, indulgently behaving as if you're the only one in the body of Christ, eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning or recognizing the Lord's body. It's horizontal. Not the Lord's body, the wafer. The Lord's body, us. There's no such thing as an independent Christian. And he says when we come together, we have to remember there's other people here too. So he says, whoever eats or drinks in this unworthy manner, eats and drinks, did you see it there? Judgment to himself. Not because they don't recognize the body. Now, again, this is not final judgment he's speaking of. He's talking to believers and challenging believers, not unbelievers. But what he's thinking about is discipline. Now, you don't have to teach your kids, moms and dads, did you have to teach your kids to be selfish? Did you have to teach them to take all the toys for themselves? Please, somebody say, no, we didn't, Pastor. They knew exactly how to do that from birth. What did you have to teach them, moms and dads? You had to teach them to share. And did you teach them to share? Did you try at least? Maybe you were successful, maybe not. But it was your intention because you believe sharing is a good thing. Now God looks down at this church in Corinth and he says, I got to teach my kids to share. He loves you and discipline is part of love. So this is what he's talking about. He clarifies the next sentence. He says, for this reason, because of the judgment, many are weak and sick among you and many sleep. He says, Corinth, you know there's some problems. You know there's some issues. There's some people that are sick. And there's some people that are powerless. And there's some people that have died. And the cause of that, Paul says prophetically, is the way you overindulge. You're overindulgent and you're selfish. And that has consequences. God says, I can't let that continue. So the most merciful thing he can do, the most loving thing he can do, is some people, he says, look, I got to take you out of the world Because if I don't, look what he says, when we are judged, we are chastened by the Lord that we may not be condemned with the world. I mean, you're walking a fine line. If I let you go longer, you may walk away from me altogether. So I'm going to take you out of the world before you do that. It's a very merciful and loving thing for God to do. But we recognize that overindulgence causes problems and brings discipline of God into our lives. That's not a bad thing. How many of you know discipline's a good thing? Say amen. Amen. You didn't mean that. You said amen because I told you to say it, but you don't mean that. Hey, discipline is a good thing because God wants to conform us to the image of his selfless, loving, affectionate son. And he's committed to doing it. Aren't we glad for that? Aren't we glad that God takes takers and makes them into givers? Did it in my life. Therefore, my brethren, when you come together to eat, now he wraps it up. He ends on a high note. Aren't we glad for that? Brethren, when you come together to eat, wait for one another. And literally, it means welcome or receive one another. But if anyone is hungry, let him eat at home, lest you come together for judgment. Eat at home so you don't come starving, so you don't come devouring. Come and enjoy the meal for what it is. It's about the relationship with God through Jesus Christ and about your relationship with each other in the body of Christ. So it's not about being full. It's about relationship. And he says, And the rest, whatever that is, I will set in order when I come. So he wraps it up there. Some things to chew on, gang. Again, pun intended. Gave you some things to chew on. 
You know, the great challenge of our culture is that we are so independent. And God calls us to interdependence. Independent lives, but we come together as a community. And for this to go well, for any community to go well, it has to be fostered by love. I pray God would continue to do that among us, don't you?